0: So why did I ask you to do this strange thing? Um, we're going to find out by going to Philippians 2 and Hebrews chapter 2. If you brought a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and turn there. Hebrews chapter 2 and Philippians 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you'll see the passages up on the screen and you can follow along that way. If you also find Bibles in the racks around you, you can free to pick one of those up and follow along. If you don't own a Bible, there's free Bibles in the back and we'd love for you to get one when you leave today and you can, you can own a copy of your own. Um, you're welcome to take one with you. Um, speaking of things in the back back there, uh, you might be interested if you're one of those individuals who keeps notes on the messages. We've uh, produced this little binder this last week here. The office staff put it together. It simply says New Hope message notes on it. It's kind of a cool little three ring thing there. So there's a paper punch back there. You can punch your notes and put them inside there if you like to collect those kind of things that might be very helpful to you. So take a look for them back there in the back. the back. So we're going to Philippians 2 and Hebrews chapter 2 for a specific reason. These last uh, couple weeks, we've been talking about who Jesus is specifically. We started this short four-week series called Revealing Jesus. This is only week two. Last week, we looked specifically at the origination. How do we understand where Jesus came from and arrived at that understanding, according to John 1.1, that He was in the beginning, right? It says He was in the beginning, with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So we arrive at that understanding that Jesus and God are co-equal. God the Father, God the Son. God the Son became Jesus. So that takes us all the way back to this thought from Colossians 1.15. You'll see it up on the screen. It says this, Jesus, speaking of him, he is the image of the invisible God, That right there is the most significant truth in your entire Bible. It is the most significant truth, because if that fails, if that's not legit, your eternal destiny is absolutely obliterated. If that's not legitimate, we may as well leave here and, I don't know, go play golf. Maybe not today, but... Like, what else do people do, you know, when they don't come to the understanding of who Jesus is? Because if that's not your guy, nothing else matters. God says He is, and so therefore we arrive at this understanding that He started in the origination, before time, as far back as our mind can go, He's God. So we come to the next question, why? big declaration big picture jesus says i am god now i do my best every weekend to explain this and i struggle with it obviously like you do we we fail our words come short we try to explain this jesus shows up on the scene and he says i am the explanation you're looking to understand god you want to understand the relationship that's me so that truth brings us to Philippians 2. I told you to stick your finger in Philippians 2 and Hebrews 2. Let's start with Philippians 2. We'll go at it, this from a big-picture point of view. It's talking about Jesus here, Philippians 2, Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, verse 6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. So, really big picture, the one who existed in the form of God takes the form of man, and he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just take the form of man, he takes the form of a servant. According to verse 7, he takes the form of a bond servant, which is a slave. The lowest of the low in human terms, someone who's there to serve other people. Now, it is not accurate to say that Jesus relinquished being God when He emptied Himself. It would be a mistake to say that. The form of God cannot mean being relinquished because God can't stop being God. Right, church? Okay, Let's make sure we're 100% on the same page here. Uh, Say yes if you agree with this. God can't stop being God, right? Okay. So God can't stop being God. Therefore, if Jesus is God, God the Son... He can't stop being God just because he's found in human form. So how do I understand that? Well, this word that's taking in verse 7, it's it's in your notes this morning. It's the Greek word laban, and you won't see it on the screen, but it it doesn't mean to exchange. It's not as though he's trading in an old car for a new car, all right? This is not like a, a deal like we think of. This is an addition to. So God, being found in the form of God, put on this additional element of being found in the flesh. He's adding to who he is, so he's still fully God. So this is inconceivably great. What we're talking about here, church, is the condescension of God. Now, we use the word condescension in a, a very insulting form. We think of somebody condescending to us as like, Man, how arrogant are you? With condescension in terms used of God, when speaking of God, means something completely different. Let me give you Paul Rees' view of this, so you'll see his quote on the screen. He said it this way, Don't forget that in all this wide universe and in all the dim reaches of history, there has never been such a demonstration of self-effacing humility as when the Son of God, in sheer grace, descended to this planet. So let's start with this perspective, because this is incredibly profound. It's so weighty, you really have to chew on this. All of God's interactions with the things that He created is a condescension. I'll put that in terms in which we can understand it. For God to even look upon the things in heaven, He humbles Himself to do that. Let me back that up for you from Scripture. It says this in Psalm 113, 5. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? This is an essential truth. God humbles himself even to look upon the angels. I'm I'm not talking about the fallen angels. I'm not talking about the demons. He humbles himself even to look upon the holy angels, according to what we see in Scripture. So let's think this truth through. As God made man, so he created angels, right? Angels are created beings. They're not eternal. So God created man, he created angels. Holy angels are pure. They have no sin whatsoever in them. Meaning there's no separation between them and God because of an impurity, but they're created. So God has to humble himself to look down upon them. There's no barrier of impurity between God and the angels, but even Michael, even Gabriel... God has to lower himself to look upon them because he's infinitely higher than all created things. So all contact, all contact is between the higher and the lower, the the greater with the lesser. And the distance between him and the created beings is absolutely immeasurable. It just boggles the mind. So for God to have dealings with fallen man is a condescension on a magnitude that we can't begin to comprehend. So the best that we can do is read the Bible and find that writers say, he just humbles himself to look upon the things of heaven. This is so great and so profound that even the angels long to look into it. Angels desire to understand that God would leave the throne of heaven to come to man on earth. Well, how do I know that? First Peter. Peter wrote about this as an old man writing to the church, and he said this in 1 Peter 1.12, These things which have now been announced to you, things into which angels long to look. Not because they're stupid. They're created higher than us. They're very intelligent. They're very old. But they're trying to grasp what has been given to fallen man and long to understand this thing that God did for us. So, if we accept the premise that God, the Son, humbled himself and became Jesus, the natural question is, why? Uh, If we have the easy button up here and we hit the Sunday school answer, we're going to go with, like, well, because we needed to be forgiven of our sins. We needed a Savior, right? Most people growing up in church could answer that really quickly that way. So enormous is the separation between man and God... It required nothing less than the action of God to come to man. We get that part, but it's more complicated than that. And I don't mean to complicate your thinking this morning, but additionally, there's a component to this. This condescension of God coming down to man really relates to why I asked you to hold the cup this morning and why you're holding the bread and not consuming it yet, because Even in the Bible, you find individuals wrestling with this thought that God entered into a contract with man on these terms. So David cries out in the book of Psalms, who are we that you even think of us? Look at the way that he said it. It comes from Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him? It's not really quickly answered, but so important for us to get this through our head. Now, if you ask that question, why did Jesus come, if you ask that on the street, you're going to get a lot of answers, really, you know, very fascinating answers. Go to, go to YouTube when you get a chance and just Google, um, put, it, put in the search engine, not in Google, but YouTube search engine and put in there, who do people say that Jesus is? You're going to find a fascinating series of videos that are put on there from New York to Philadelphia, L.A., Kansas, and there's some strange answers, I'm just telling you. But most of them are only like a minute or two long, but we don't go to culture for that answer, Right? Right, church? We we don't go to culture for that. We go to God's Word. Why did Jesus come? I'm not going to ask culture, because culture is going to mess you up every time. So our understanding comes from God's Word, so let's go to God's Word. This is why I had you stick your finger in Hebrews chapter 2. Flip flip over there. You're in Philippians 2? Go to Hebrews 2. It says this. This is God's explanation for why Jesus came. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, speaking of us, talking about humans, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That clears it up, right? Yeah, right? (laughs) Some of us are tripping over that right now, like, what? Well, how did he say that? There's an insight in there, but it's really complex. So let's just break it down in, in simple terms. There had to be a specific action Something that God had to do. So let me put first the the three breakouts up on the screen for you. And so you can see verse 14, 15, and 17 and and understand these are the specific actions that he carried out for us. Here's the first one. Verse 14, he rendered powerless him who had the power of death. Who's the him, church? Satan. Satan. That's right. Satan held the power of death and Satan's trump card is eternal damnation to hell. He had to hold that as, as bondage over all humanity. Jesus, we're told, takes the teeth out of that monster by removing his power, his trump card, death. Verse 15 says this to free those who had, through the fear of death, were slaves to it. Are you afraid of death this morning? It, scripture says if you are, you're a slave. What's the deal with a slave? A slave has no direction over their own future. They can't control it. They're controlled by a master. In this case, the master is death. A slave doesn't know its own destiny. So he came to free those who were slaves. And verse 17 is the next step, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is just a really big $10 church word. It it, it means sacrifice. To make a sacrifice for the sins of the people. Why? Because if I'm if I'm new to all this, I want to understand what's going on here. Romans 3.23 says, because every one of us has sinned. We are fallen people. And if we say we don't have sin, God says, you're a liar. Because everybody has sinned. Everybody's got sin in them. So Romans 3.23 clarifies that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So here's what we understand from those verses we just looked at. Verse 17 makes it really clear. Jesus had to become like one of us. Now, many people make the mistake of thinking, well, he had to do that so that he could identify with us, so he could really understand us. That's not true. That would be inaccurate to say. God is omniscient, right? Meaning he knows all things. He hardwired you. He built you. So God knows you intimately, inside and out. So he didn't have to become like one of us so that he would know us. It's not as though he did this for his own benefit. God is omniscient, meaning He knows all things. Here's why. But so that He and He alone, only one qualified to do it, He and He alone could carry out specific actions. What are those actions? Well, taken right from those verses, you'll see it on the screen, here's the three actions. Satan had to be defeated. Number two, to free his children. Number three, specifically to make a blood covenant. That's why you hold the cup this morning. So number one, Satan had to be defeated, and although his doom is sure, to quote an old hymn, he's still got free reign around this planet. He's called the prince in the power of the air. The teeth have been removed, the power of slavery has been taken, but he's still hanging around. He's still making life miserable. He eventually will be dealt with. And to free the children, meaning those who have been chained as slaves... And number three, to make this blood covenant. And that's why it's so important for you to have that cup this morning. Don't pick it up yet, though. I'll tell you why in just a minute. So you've been in Hebrews 2. Flip back over to Philippians 2 now. Keep your fingers between those two. We'll go back to Philippians 2 and verse 6, and it says this, speaking of Jesus again, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Although he existed in the form of God, he steps down from this lofty position where he existed as God. Notice this. Before, during, and after, he's eternally God, unalterable. He can't stop being God. So in your notes this morning, there's this big Greek word, huparko. If you're streaming this online, just download the notes, and and you'll see it right on there. Huparko has this concept to it of being something that is unchangeable. It's where the, the understanding of the immutability of God comes from. He's unalterable. He can't be changed because he always is the same. He existed. That's the word, therefore, existed. Unchanging in the form of God. So he's in the form of God, which is this word morphe, We get the English word morph from it. It means the outer expression of an inner reality, this truth about who he is. So if I'm losing you, here's the big idea. The big idea is this. From all eternity, Jesus preexisted as God, equal with God in every single way, not diminished in one factor whatsoever. So if we put this in a really, really weak analogy we'd be thinking this way. Like, I own a smartphone, right? And I could change the cover on my smartphone. Is it still a smart smartphone even if I change the cover? Right? The cover changes, but it's still the same guts inside. Okay, so weak analogy. I'll acknowledge that. But we're struggling with human turns trying to describe what God did for us. So for that God to change in any degree whatsoever, even temporarily demands a descent, And the Creator takes on the form of the created. Verse 6 tells us why. Because He did not consider it a thing to be grasped. Even though He's entitled to all the rights and the privileges of the King of kings and Lord of lords, He gives up all the rights, all the entitlements, even though He's challenged to. What happens in the temptation of Christ? Satan finds Him, They're in the wilderness together. Jesus is really hungry. Forty days, we're told, he fasted. Satan shows up and says, hey, I think you're really hungry. How about making a pizza? Because, you know, you're like God, right? How about if you take these stones and make them into bread? Really warm, buttery bread. Like Panera good. Mmm. Why does he do that? Satan knows who Jesus is. He's God. The demons recognized him. What are you doing here? What business do we have with you, son of the Most High? So Satan recognizes who is Jesus. Why is he appealing to a temptation? Because he's 100% man, and he's 100% God. And he brings the man's side out, trying to tempt him to use his powers to his own advantage. But you never find Jesus using his godness for his own personal gain. Why? Because Philippians 2 says it is not a thing to be grasped. And that very decision set in motion the incarnation, and God puts on flesh. So rather than demanding the privileges, he submits to the plan of redemption. And at any single moment, the Bible says, he can appeal to God the Father, and God will send him 12,000 angels to bail him out. It says 12 legions of angels. In the Roman terms, a legion was a 1,000. So it sounds like a lot of angels, right? I'm thinking one angel could have done a lot of damage. 12,000, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know in a moment I can appeal to my Father? He'll send me 12 legions of angels? But that would thwart the plan. Now, let's just compare this thought. Jesus shows up, and he's in the wilderness, and Satan is tempting him by saying, why don't you, if you're the Son of God, make those stones into bread? Jesus' response is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. But in contrast to that, he stands on a seashore, And he makes enough food for 5,000 people to eat bread and fish. Does he have the power to turn the stones into bread? Absolutely. Does he subdue his godness? Theologians think of this as him putting like a veil over himself. So we find in verse 7, he emptied himself. So although he's absolutely God, he empties himself of all the privileges and all the rights. The the word that you find in your notes this morning is the kenosis, the keno. This is the emptying, completely emptying. It's translated in Romans, nullified, meaning like he shrouded himself. Can't stop being God, but he can't let people see. So he's emptied himself of every trace of his privilege, and occasionally you see it leaking out. In different evidences of the various miracles. Now keep in mind, he has surrendered the privileges of his deity, not deity itself. Had he stopped being God, could he have died for your sins? This (laughs) is participatory. Could he die for your sins if he stopped being God? No, it's not possible. He could die for himself. But he couldn't die for you and me. This is really significant to communion. So we understand this from an an old dead theologian, um, Dr. Linsky. I quote a lot of old dead theologians because, you know, I can can tell they lived their whole life through faithful to God, and and they just had profound thoughts. But here's one of them. Dr. Linsky said it this way, even in the midst of his death, he had to be the mighty God in order by his death to conquer death. Uh, I'm about ready to ask you to pick up those elements, the, the cup and the bread, but hold it for just a minute. Because there's these, these five things that Jesus did specifically when He descended. And they're in your notes this morning, but you're going to see them on the screen as well. Here's the things that help us really appreciate why He entered into this covenant with us. These are the specific things that He did. He temporarily, number one, denied Himself of His glory. Now think of this. The worship of the angels in heaven and all those humans who have gone before us who are believers crying out, holy, 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 gave it up. His throne position, where he dwells in unapproachable light, he surrendered his glory, the shining brilliance of heaven. The second thing, he denied himself the independent authority. As God the Son, able to speak worlds into existence, he comes to earth and says, I do nothing on my own initiative. John 6 really drives it home. I have come down down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Here's the third thing that he did. He denied himself the exercise of some of his attributes. He didn't stop being omniscient. He didn't stop being omnipotent. You see him in the back of a boat telling the seas to silence And the sea stops waving and no more storm. But he denied himself the exercise of some of those attributes. Here's a fourth one. I think you've probably not thought about this before. Many people haven't. He denied himself the eternal riches of heaven. Now, it's one thing to deny yourself the riches of earth But let's contrast it this way. I'm thinking the gold that God has in heaven is much purer than the gold that we have on a fallen planet. What do you think? Okay? So God says, I've got so much of this stuff, I use it for concrete. I pave the streets with it, right? I make sidewalks out of gold. There's so much of it. I am so wealthy, you're going to walk on it one day. Gave it up. Why? We're told according to 2 Corinthians 8 9, for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. It's your God for you. For you should be coming screaming out right now because he did it for us. Here's the last one. Number five, he denied himself that face-to-face intimate relationship with God the Father. We talked about that a lot last week. Where he came from, the existence, God with God, intimate fellowship. See, it's the absolute horror of being alienated from God the Father and bearing my sin and your sin. That caused him to sweat drops of blood that were so huge, the writers in the Bible strained to explain it. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on his face, and Scripture says he's just pouring out blood from his pores of his body sweating blood. Why? Because he knew what was coming. Not the death on the cross. The separation from God. The distance. And and you see the climax of it when he's on the cross, the complete separation. When he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God. We're separated. God, 100%. Man, 100% who's never known separation from God, and he decides, according to verse 7, to become in the likeness of man. We're talking about the miracle of the virgin birth. That's what verse 7 is talking about. It's the Christmas story. Angels we have heard on high. All that stuff. It's right there in verse 7. He became exactly like us. All the attributes of humanity, so like other humans, that even his own family didn't know. His mom, yeah, she was clued in. Didn't fully grasp it, but his brothers and sisters, they thought he was crazy. You know, there's a story in the Bible where they come to a house where he's at and they want to pull him away to the loony bin, thinking he's daft in the head. How can he possibly be thinking like this? Well, because he became so much like us, they couldn't tell the difference to the degree that he who made life subjected himself to death. Why? So he could destroy the one thing that you fear most. And it's not public speaking. And it's not the fear of being alone. And it's not the fear of not having enough money. Scripture says it's the fear of death, the fear of not knowing what's on the other side of not knowing what your destiny is. So that brings us very quickly back to Hebrews 2, and this is how we're going to finish because you're about to pick up the cup. Hebrews 2 says specifically again, Hebrews 2.14, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 14 says that he might destroy. The word destroy in the Greek language It means render inoperative by obliterating. This is an absolute destruction. There's only one way to render Satan inoperative, and that's to take his weapon. What was his weapon? Death, eternal death, damnation to hell? Now, if you've got a more powerful weapon than your enemy... His weapon is useless. Just think this way. It's really tough to go to battle against a United States Navy destroyer if you only have a rowboat, right? Okay? What does God do? Our God sends the King of Kings. That's His weapon. And He came to annihilate the enemy. And there were no peace talks whatsoever. There's no negotiation going on. So Jesus condescends from the throne of glory in heaven for victory. How does that victory take place? Through death. Like, what? We'll put it in first century terms because they had a better way of responding to the thought that Jesus died. They said things like this. What? How do you get it through your head? 2,000 years, people have been trying to figure out what victory through death? How is that possible? Here's how it's possible. He went into death on the cross. He went through death in the grave, and he came out the other side. Wow. That's why he said in John 14, 19, because I live, you're going to live also. Because he abolished the enemy. See, the resurrection is the proof of the destruction, church. The resurrection is the proof, the guarantee. What terrifies people more than anything? Exceeding terror, exceedingly great. It's a horrible, freaking terror, death, because they don't know their own destiny. That's why Paul wrote so powerfully to the Corinthians, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? You don't have it anymore because he took the teeth out of the monster. Why, for you and I, is that true this morning? Because we belong to the conqueror. How about if you pick up your cup right now and you pick up your bread? It would be an act of breathtaking humility. If God did nothing more than just put on flesh, If he did nothing more than just become one of us. But to add to that, we find the one who created solar systems sitting in a carpenter's shop with his dad, making tables, putting on the clothes of a slave, and washing the smelly feet of his followers while they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And in slave clothes, the night that he is betrayed, he holds up a piece of bread. He said, this is going to represent my body, which is going to be shredded for you. Let's consume the bread right now. And then he enters into a covenant. If you have any experience in the legal world, you know what a covenant is. It's a promise, a pledge. When God makes promises, he keeps them, right, church? So we're told, according to Luke, Luke quotes the actual words of Jesus. Luke, specifically, 22, verse 20. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. How about if we drink that right now? For you. Two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. If not the most beautiful. I did this for you. I put on flesh for you. I gave up eternity for you. I'm going to the cross for you. The next time you think God is too great to be concerned about your job loss or your bad health report or your empty bank account, you remember this teaching. For me. Can, can we say that together on three? For me? One, two, three. For me. It's the truth of God, and God cannot lie. He did this for us. Why? Because He loves us so much. He wants us to be transferred from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of God. And the cup that you just consumed is his commitment to you. He said, this is why I want you to remember what I did. I entered into this covenant with you. Who can measure the gap between the throne and the cross? We can't. So God says, I'm going to give you these things to remember what I did. The bread and the cup. And we struggle to remember that our God cares intimately about the things going on in your world right now. And when you leave the doors and when you get in your car or you walk home, He cares intimately because He built you and He died for you. How great is our God. Hmm. Let's pray together. Father, while, while our, our words fall incredibly short, we recognize that we use them to, to strain and struggle to magnify you. And, and when our talking words fail, we try and put them to song. So we'll use song right now. We're going to stand and we're going to fill our lungs and praise you in the best way that we possibly can. Because our minds are overwhelmed with the thought of what you've done for us. So we ask that you would receive it that way. And all of God's people said, Amen.